LinkedIn presents. If you've been paying attention at all to the news in the past 10, 20 years, then you're probably familiar with sound bites like these. The earth is now in an era of global boiling. And the situation we are witnessing now is the demonstration that climate change is out of control. A code rent for humanity. A hotter future is already locked in. But if you look at the data, it tells a more optimistic story. And that is the story we're going to share on today's show. I'm Rufus Griscom. And I'm Caleb Bissinger. And this is The Next Big Idea. Today, some surprisingly good news about climate change. Up until a few weeks ago, Rufus, I was a full-blown climate pessimist. Really, Caleb? I'm a little surprised by that. I don't think of you as a pessimistic person. Yeah. I mean, I'm not by nature. By nature, I am pretty optimistic. But when it comes to climate, for as long as I can remember, smart people have been warning us that climate change is real. It's an ever-growing threat. And I think it's reached the stage in the past few years where those no longer just feel like abstract warnings, right? It's no longer Al Gore and his PowerPoint and his scissor lift. The crew here has tried to teach me how to use this contraption here. So if I don't kill myself, I'll... We've moved from projections... You've heard of off the charts. Within less than 50 years, it'll be here. ...to real-world devastation. Tonight, after a summer of devastating storms, ferocious wildfires, and scorching heat, Greece is facing a war with climate change. And while politicians say they're taking action... Last year, I signed into law in the United States the largest investment ever anywhere in the history of the world to combat the climate crisis and help move the global economy toward a clean energy future. Nothing really seems to change. So that's why I used to be a climate pessimist. But this episode is about why, for the first time in years, I'm feeling kind of optimistic about the climate. And I want to tell listeners why. I want to tell them why I've done this 180. But before I do, I just want to bring you into this, Rufus. Like, where are you on this optimist-pessimist spectrum? Well, you know, I've been deeply concerned about climate change for many, many years and, and frustrated by the lack of action. Yeah. But at the same time, I've had a view that people are probably underestimating the power of tech solutions, which tend mm-hmm. to develop exponentially. So I've, I've feared catastrophic impact from climate change, but not apocalyptic. Uh, you may have noticed, Caleb, that it has not kept me from procreating. <laughs> <laughs> but after listening to your conversation for this episode... I feel a couple notches more optimistic. That's great. That's the point. So why are we both feeling more optimistic? It's all thanks to this woman. I'm Hannah Ritchie, and I'm a researcher at the University of Oxford. She's also the deputy editor of a publication, a very cool publication, called Our World in Data. And what Hannah and her colleagues do is, you know, there's all this scientific data that is locked behind paywalls or it's trapped in academic journals. And their mission is to liberate it. 
right? Make it accessible to everyone. And in the course of her work, she has combed through like, I don't know, terabytes of data about climate change. And what she's found has surprised her. I don't want to give too much away because this is like the meat of the episode, but just one example. Globally, carbon emissions per person are falling. That's crazy. We don't hear that in the news. And this is just one of the many statistical indicators that suggests, you know, we've got a long way to go on climate change, but our attempts to mitigate the worst effects are working. And that's one of the discoveries that inspired Hannah to write a new book called Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. I think that reframing is really important because it gives us a reason to keep fighting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. As the title suggests, you know, she makes this rousing, radical, hopeful case that we're not screwed. It's still within our grasp to save the planet. And in the process, we might even build a better world. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hannah Ritchie, welcome to The Next Big Idea. Thanks very much for having me. I want to start by reading you a few lines from an essay, a pretty controversial essay, that the novelist Jonathan Franzen published in The New Yorker five years ago. He wrote, if you're younger than 60, you have a good chance of witnessing the radical destabilization of life on Earth. Massive crop failures, apocalyptic fires, imploding economies, epic flooding, hundreds of millions of refugees, fleeing regions made uninhabitable by extreme heat or permanent drought. That is an extremely grim picture, Hannah. Do you buy it? No, I don't buy it. I don't buy that that future is locked in for us. We are currently on a trajectory on climate where it's not a good one. So if you look at where we're headed by the end of the century, we're headed for you know between two and a half to three degrees of warming, which is obviously well above our climate targets of well below two degrees, and if we can, one point five degrees. So we're we're not on track, and we really need to to bend that curve to get into a much safer zone. Why I don't necessarily buy that is because I think we are now at a stage where we have solutions coming online. They're cheap, they're affordable, they're actually getting a lot of traction. And I think with these types of curves, kind of solution type curves, they don't really go linearly, like they can go much, much faster. So they they tend to follow more of an exponential rise than a linear rise. So I think we're kind of at this stage right now where we really need to get moving on on climate. And if we don't, then we will face a a pretty dire future. But I, I, I still don't buy that that future is locked in for us. And yet it seems to me that that a lot of people out there share that doom and gloom pessimism that Jonathan Franzen writes about. And it's my understanding that, Hannah, you were once one of those doom and gloom people. Isn't that the case, that back in the day, that's how you felt about climate change? Yeah, I think if you'd asked me, you know, 10 years or so ago, I would definitely have been in the same position where, I mean, I'd studied environmental sciences at university and that was my 
kind of academic background. And I think when I looked at where we were sitting in terms of climate, like I couldn't really see any way forward by which we would take any action at all, really. But I think my my perception has shifted a lot over the last 10 years based on developments that I've seen. I want to pinpoint the moment then when everything changed for you. And I think maybe the best way to do that is to play you a really quick audio clip. So I'm going to play you this clip and and let's see if you can recognize, I think you will, who's speaking. In my lifetime, former colonies gained independence and then finally they started to get healthier and healthier and healthier. And in the 1970s, then countries in Asia and Latin America started to catch up with the Western countries. They became the emerging economies. So who was that? That was Hans Rosling, who was a Swedish statistician. Well, formerly he was a, a doctor and physician. And then he was a, a statistician. And, and as you heard from the, the audio clip, he would give these like talks where he would use data on what was happening and, and, and how the world has changed to show people what's happened to the world on extreme poverty or kids going to school or child mortality or many of the the metrics that we'd assume are congruent with like high standards of living and human well-being and i think the the kind of trick that he would, would show was that many of our assumptions about these trends are often upside down so if you ask people you know over the last 50 years has the share of people in extreme poverty gone up or down and most people say that it's increased when actually when you step back and look at the data is is a a really really strong decline so what he would often show is that we were much more pessimistic about the world than the data would tell us we should be. And yet, despite the enormous disparities today, we have seen 200 years of remarkable progress. That huge historical gap between the West and the rest is now closing. And I see a clear trend into the future with aid, trade, green technology and peace. It's fully possible that everyone can make it to the healthy, wealthy corner. So this approach is zoom out. Don't focus on the latest scary headline. Look at the big picture. And so following Hans's lead, you zoomed out on climate change. And what you saw, this is a quote from the book, is something truly radical, game-changing, and life-giving. Humanity is in a truly unique position to build a sustainable world. That is not something I have heard a lot of other climate scientists or data experts out there saying. Tell me more. This is good. I love this optimism. So I think what I mean by that is that I think if you look historically, human progress tended to be in conflict with the environment or environmental damage. Our ancestors might have been like in much more balance with the environment and have a much lower environmental impact. But as we discussed, many of the kind of human well-being metrics that we'd consider today were poor. Like child mortality, for example, was was extremely high. What we've seen over the last few centuries is that balance has tipped the other way, where many of these human well-being metrics have got much, much better, but they've came at the cost of the environment, right? We've burned fossil fuels for energy, so we're driving climate change and air pollution. Mm-hmm. We've expanded farmlands to the cost 
cost of, of forests and, and natural habitats. But what I see when I look at the data is that I think we are now in a very unique position where I don't think these two things need to be in conflict anymore. I think we can provide a good life for eight, nine, ten billion people and we can reduce our environmental impact at the same time. So your book is called Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. The we in your title refers, I think, to our generation. You and I are both in our early 30s. I do have to say, though, like when I talk to friends, when I talk to peers, I don't think a lot of them feel like they are part of the first generation that's going to build a sustainable planet, right? I think the more typical attitude is pessimism and, frankly, fear. So I reached out to a few friends, a few family members who are around our age. I asked them to record voice memos, tell me about their biggest climate anxieties, and I thought I could play a couple of those for you, and let's talk about them. Maybe we can make them feel better. Maybe you can debunk a couple misconceptions. How does that sound? Sounds good. Okay, so this first memo comes from my little brother. He's 20 years old. He's a sophomore in college. And his biggest anxiety is something that I think you hear a lot from young people today. I feel like I can't have kids because climate change will kill them. Like by the time that they are fully functioning, people will just be too late for them to have fulfilling, happy lives because it's, it'll just be over. What do you think, Hannah? Is he wrong to be worried about having kids? I think what's really key to convey here is that I don't think we're doomed to a future where we have an unlivable planet and young people growing up can't have a good and fulfilling life. It's not going to happen on its own. But I think there's two key things that we can do and, and, and it's completely possible to do to try to maintain a good standard of living for people this century. The one is that we just need to act, get our act together on climate change. Mm -hmm. We need to bend that curve on the emissions trajectory that we're on. And I think we can do that. I think we are currently on track for two and a half to three degrees. I think we can bend that curve much, much closer to two degrees. Now, at two degrees, there will be quite severe impacts of climate change, mm -hmm. but not to the extent that they are you know, extinction level events. But that comes to the second part, which is that we, we also need to just adapt to a warming world. We're past the stage now where we can just mitigate our way out of this. Like there will right. be impacts. But the question is, can we adapt our societies in order to live with those impacts? And I think that's also entirely possible. Um, so I think combining those two factors, I don't accept the notion that, you know, our kids We'll, we'll have an unlivable planet to live on. This is somewhat of a personal question, so feel free to pass on it. But I, I wonder what your personal thinking is on this. Is, I mean, are you interested in, in having children? Is that something that you would consider? Yeah, I don't currently have children, but I would, yeah, I would want to have children despite knowing what I know about climate change. When we think about climate change and our other environmental problems, like a key motivating driver for people is like we want to protect the planet for our kids and our grandkids and, and generations that come after us. If none of us have kids, then there won't be future generations right. that, that come after us. So I think, I mean, again, it's a very personal decision, but I think for some people actually 
having kids and having a much stronger personal connection with with the the planet that future generations might inhabit actually drives them to do more because they're more concerned. You mentioned earlier these temperature targets. We're led to believe, whether it's one and a half degrees Celsius, two degrees Celsius, that those are tipping points, right? And that if we cross over them, it's game over. And this is on the mind of my little sister, who's also 20. Let's take a listen to what she had to say. What makes me most anxious when it comes to our progress on climate change is, I think, in 2015, in Paris, a lot of countries seem to agree that we were screwed if temperatures rose more than two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial revolution levels. And it seems like we're headed pretty quickly towards that number. So how soon should we expect to be living on a planet that is one and a half to two degrees warmer? So when we look at um, in terms of 1.5 degrees, now I think it's important to clarify that we try to differentiate climate from weather. So weather will be like one-off events. So, you'll, I mean, you often see this on the more climate denial side, right? Where someone will say, oh, it was cold today where I live, therefore <laughs> climate change isn't happening. And that's that's weather. So we try to define climate as like a, a, a longer term average you now over like, say, 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not necessarily that if we have a year by which we're over 1.5 degrees of warming that we've kind of broken the Paris Agreement. That's not really how it works. But I could see that on our current trajectory, we could see going past the 1.5 degree threshold on climate by 2030 or the early 2030s. Okay. I would also then expect that by two degrees, you could be looking at that in, you know, the late 2040s or 2050. Okay. Now, I think what's important to, to point out there is that, again, these are not necessarily like tipping points when people think about 1.5 degrees, I think they assume that once we reach 1.5 degrees, that's it and it's over. And I think climate is often framed as a kind of all or nothing or, you know, you win or you lose. But that's not really how this works. Like climate is almost like a spectrum rather than a distinctive threshold, which means that impacts will increase with every increment of warming which sounds bad, but that also means that once we pass 1.5 degrees, we need to fight for 1.6 and 1.7 and Mm 1.8 and 1.9. And with each kind of 0.1 degree of warming that we avert, like we reduce the impacts of climate and and ultimately we save lives. So I think we need to stop thinking about this as a all or nothing and think about it in terms of degrees or, or ranges. And I think what that therefore leads to as a conclusion is that it's never too late for us to take action because we will always manage to reduce impacts by taking action. Even if we can, as you say, bend the curve and avoid living on a planet that's like that one Franza describes, this sort of apocalyptic hellscape, there is no denying, right, that the world is is getting warmer and we are going to be seeing impacts of that. I'd love you to talk a little bit about what some of those oncoming impacts look like. There are various impacts that we should be concerned about. One is like direct heat stress. So mm. one of the most obvious impacts of climate change is that heat waves across the world will just get warmer and po- probably extended over a longer 
period of time and we need mm-hmm. to be prepared for that. Another potential impact that I, I'm really interested in and we need to manage to adapt to is, is impacts on our food systems. Um, now, I don't think we see, you know, the global kind of global harvest completely fail, but what we will start to see is that or potentially start to see is a reduction in yields in some parts of the world because of heat stress. There are ways by which we can start to mitigate these impacts. Um, but I think for me, it's really important to get across that this is a this is about um, degrees of changing and, and fighting for every increment of warming rather than saying it's a pass fail at 1.5 degrees. Okay, let's hear another climate concern. This is from a friend of mine named Cody. We've come to expect that carbon emissions are in many ways an inevitable byproduct of development, especially in countries and regions of the world that are still at the very early end of that development curve. Is it possible to address climate change while still making space for more countries to develop? How do we balance prioritizing the long-term viability of our environment to support human life while still addressing the very real short to mid-term needs to improve quality of life for so many people in developing nations around the world? The balance seems almost impossible. I thought that was really interesting, right? I mean, there are, we know, so many people, too many people living in poverty around the world. but. Don't a lot of the things that improve quality of life, you know, electricity, industry, transportation, just necessarily result in more emissions? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think it's really at the heart of of the kind of theme of the book is how do we how do we find this balance between being able to reduce our environmental impact, but also achieving like human flourishing or human development? Now, it's completely correct that if you look historically, like most metrics of human development are very closely tied to CO2 emissions. And in particular, they're tied to energy. So energy is a massive driver of, of human progress. And in the past, the, the the challenge has been that all of that energy has come from fossil fuels. And I think to some extent in kind of environmental circles, we shy away too much from just admitting that like fossil fuels actually have just massively benefited humans. I think we're now at the stage where we can clearly see that there are really negative byproducts of burning fossil fuels. So we need to move away to something else. But I think we should also just admit that, you know, I'm probably here today because of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So how we balance that is 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 very difficult. There are a couple of different steps to this process. I think what's really, really key is that rich countries in particular get their emissions down very quickly. Now, we call this making space Hmm. in the carbon budget where the emphasis should be on rich countries who have benefited the most from burning lots of fossil fuels should get their emissions down. So there's a bit more space for poorer countries to increase their carbon emissions a bit that they will develop and they will just burn fossil fuels for some time. So we should make space for them to be able to do that. And it's probably immoral for us not to do that. So the emphasis has to be on rich countries to get their emissions down. Now, emissions in rich countries are falling. They're not falling fast enough, but in most rich countries, they are falling. The big question then is, can lower income countries across the world develop in a way that they don't follow the really carbon intensive paths that say the US or the UK has taken. Mm-hmm. And I think there I'm quite optimistic that they can. And the reason for that is that if you look at the cost of low carbon technologies, so solar or wind or batteries or electric vehicles, the cost of these technologies have plummeted. A decade ago, they were the most expensive technologies we had on energy. They're now competitive or lower in cost than fossil fuels. 
which means that poorer countries can just start to adopt these technologies and it's no trade-off to fossil fuels because they're cheaper or they're the same price. So I think you will see a trajectory for, for many low-income countries where they, they will be able to develop in a way where they're using low carbon energy rather than fossil fuels. So I think we're kind of at this point where this really tight link between fossil fuels and human development is kind of eroding, which makes me optimistic for the future. All right, open your boxes. Coming up. Open your boxes. One, two, three. But would they be screaming if Oprah had given them electric cars? Probably not. Because 85% of Americans are ambivalent about getting an electric car. My wife happens to be one of them. When we come back, we'll see if Hannah can change her mind. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Let's hear another clip. This one is about renewables and about green technology. So... Obviously, we need to move away from fossil fuels to alternatives like electric vehicles and solar panels. But is making the transition to these alternatives even possible? Can we as a society really afford to do so? And what about the downsides of producing green technology, like the environmental cost of mining for materials to make electric vehicle batteries? Is it really any better than fossil fuels? So that's my wife. As you can tell, she's a little bit of a techno-skeptic. <laughs> what about you, Hannah? I feel like maybe you're actually a bit of a techno-optimist. Yeah, on these, the, you know, the technologies mentioned there, like, yeah, I'm optimistic about the trajectory of these trends. I think what's really changed for me and makes me more optimistic in the last five years or so has been the cost of these technologies. Like, I think she asked, like, can we afford to? Mm-hmm. And I think the really key point there is, yes, we can. Like, they are, again, they are competitive now with fossil fuels, if not lower in cost. And and to some extent, we still see the prices of these technologies falling. Like, the price of solar defies our expectations year after year after year. And, you know, we think, you know, maybe it's going to stop soon, but it's not stopping soon. It's continuing to fall in price. So I think on the economics of it, it's very, very viable that we can make this transition. I think on the impacts of these technologies, I think, yeah, lots of people have concerns about are we just creating even bigger problems in another area? I think there are a couple of dimensions to this. I think people often think about the minerals that would be used in these technologies. I think it's important to put these into context from what we're doing today. So we're never going to reach a position where we're going to have a perfect solution that has zero impact. Like that just doesn't exist. So we need to accept that we're going to have some impact. The question is, is the impact much less than fossil fuels? And the answer to that is yes. So if you look at the amount of minerals we'd think we'd need to mine for these low carbon technologies, you're talking about the order of tens of millions or hundreds of millions of tonnes, which sounds like a lot. 
But you need to compare that to the fact that we're pulling out 15 billion tonnes of fossil fuels every single year. Mm -hmm. So we're doing that year after year after year. You cannot recycle fossil fuels. What you can do with these alternative technologies is you will have this initial period where we will just need to build up our supply and resources because we, we haven't mined them yet. But you can start to build this economy which is much more circular, right? We can recycle these minerals and put them back into solar panels or electric vehicles. That's not to say that this is going to be a flawless transition. Like there's really important uh, environmental and especially social factors that we should take into account when we're, we're thinking about where these minerals are going to come from. Mm -hmm. Can we make sure we support local communities? Can we make sure we're doing it in an envir environmentally responsible way? But I think that's entirely achievable. Um, and I think it's a much better alternative to burning fossil fuels. I'm glad you mentioned the social cost because I think we do have a tendency to sort of focus on, you know, does mining for cobalt and lithium, does it create air pollution and water pollution and land degradation? But I do think the social cost is also really high. I mean, researchers who have studied, uh, I think, cobalt mines in the Democratic Republic of Congo have compared the conditions there to modern day slavery. But your stance would be that's a problem we can and should solve and it is still worth it to make this transition. Absolutely. And I think cobalt there is a really good example. Like I've written quite a bit on cobalt supply chains in the past. And you're absolutely right that cobalt is a really essential mineral in many batteries, especially like lithium ion batteries. Now, this has been a problem for our, all of our electronics, like our phone or laptops. They all use this and they all have mm -hmm. cobalt in it. But the rise of electric vehicles is obviously going to massively increase battery demand. Now, working conditions in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where most cobalt is mined, are, are really poor. Uh, most people live very close to the extreme poverty line. Ch we know that child labour happens in some of these supply chains. The working standards are very, very poor. But what we've also seen on electric vehicles is that many manufacturers are actually moving away to battery technologies that don't use cobalt. So Tesla, for example, last year, at least half of their new vehicles used what we call lithium iron phosphate batteries, which don't contain any cobalt. So there is actually a, a likelihood that we will in the future just use electric vehicle batteries that don't use cobalt. Mm. So I think there are ways in which we can do this in a much more responsible way. It's not going to happen on its own and we need to be really aware of the pitfalls. But I think there are ways that we can navigate this in a much more responsible way. Let's stick on electric vehicles. I was amazed to learn in your book that sales of petrol cars peaked in 2017. Is that really true? I mean, it must be. It's in your book. Yeah, that's right. Global sales of gasoline cars yeah, peaked in 2017. So we're seeing this transition to electric vehicles, and it's uneven between low- and middle-income countries and, and richer countries. It's uneven between Europe and the U.S. You suggest in the book that the climate law that President Biden signed in, in 2022 was hopefully going to have a really positive effect on EV adoption here in the States because that bill has really generous tax subsidies for folks who are buying new electric vehicles. What we've seen, though, in the past year is that growth of EVs was not what car makers anticipated and Ford and Tesla and GM have all sort of scaled back investment in their EV operations. Are you still optimistic? Are you bullish about the transition to electric cars, particularly in the US? I think in many markets, I'm 
pretty bullish about electric vehicles. I think, again, because I think the cost of these will just continue to fall. Like if you look, for example, like China is moving really, really quickly on electric vehicles. And I mean, the cost now, I think you can get like a really good electric vehicle in China for like the equivalent of ten to $15,000. Amazing. And I think for me, that's a really essential part of this transition, especially in transport. I think so far, electric vehicles have pretty much been geared towards a quite elite market. What we're going to really need to see widespread adoption is much more cars coming in at a, like affordable range for you know someone like me. Um, <laughs> so I'm pretty optimistic that we will start to get there in the next few years. And I actually think that will have a big bump on uh, EV sales. I think for many people, even in the US today, the upfront cost of these cars is still like a big barrier. I think your total running costs over the course of the vehicle will probably pay off. Mm-hmm. But I think the upfront cost is still a barrier, even with um, potentially uh, kind of subsidies. It is also, though, I need to state that it's quite clear that the US has lagged behind, for example, China or Europe. Sales of EVs there are much lower than in other markets, but I'm still pretty optimistic that they start to pick up. Maybe we could go in together on an electric car. I don't know how we would share it between Los Angeles and London, but (laughs) surely we could figure that out. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I do think something else that's important to acknowledge in this sort of conversation about electric cars and about transportation is that regardless of whether you're in a position to buy an electric car, something we should all do if we're able, if we live in a place where it's possible, is just drive less, right? Walk. Mm -hmm. Ride your bike if you can. Take public transportation if it exists where you live. If we could move a lot of people out of their cars and onto sidewalks or into buses, that would have a really huge impact, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Like that was my like my kind of first thing on transport is, you know, as much as we can, walk, cycle, take public transport. And I think like having a car or driving your car should kind of to some extent be the last resort. Um, and the reason I, I think, I think some sometimes kind of on the environmental side, it's very much a kind of no one should have a car type approach. And the reason I don't try to promote that is because I think just realistically, some people do need a car, like yeah. they need a car to commute or public transport's not there. But yeah, the first and foremost, like if you can walk, cycle or get public transport, that's the best. I mean, I I, I don't have a car because I just don't need one. Like I live mm-hmm. in a dense city. The public transport networks are, are good and I, I like to walk. But my circumstances in the future could change, uh, in which case then the best option would be getting an electric car. Okay, ready for another clip? Yep. Okay, I think you're going to like this one. It's about food. I'm not sure that food is necessarily the first climate anxiety that comes to most people's minds, but it is the first one that came to the mind of my colleague, Jeremy. Let's hear what he has to say. Yeah, so I've got a few big climate anxieties. Um, one is all about eating meat. I just know that it's it's supposed to be really bad for the environment, right? So just how bad is eating meat? So yeah, I think you're right that when we think about climate change, we often think of just like energy, fossil fuels, transport. Mm-hmm. Now that's about three quarters of our emissions, but the other final quarter comes from our food systems. We're not going to solve climate change only focusing on food, but I think it's also very clear that we can't solve climate change without some attention to food and reducing our emissions. And uh, yeah, Jeremy is absolutely correct that when you look at the climate impacts of different foods, it's very clear that meat just in general has 
a higher carbon footprint than plant-based foods. And in particular, there's a kind of ranking um, from biggest animal to smallest animal. So beef mm. tends to be the worst, followed by lamb, then pork, then chicken and fish. And I think for for someone that's looking at the carbon footprint of their diet, that is ultimately the, the biggest change that they can make. So if you were to switch your beef burger for a bit of chicken, you would significantly reduce your carbon footprint. I also realise that for many people, you know, just going all in on veganism is not realistic. But I think you can actually have a big impact by reducing, like starting off by reducing, whether it's a meal a day or whether you go for, you know, a meatless Monday, it's sometimes called. For me, I'm now a vegan, um, but I didn't necessarily start in that position but I think you start to get familiar with different recipes that don't have meat or you try some meat substitutes and actually you find that they're not so bad um, and I think gradually from there people can build where they start to reduce more and more because they actually quite like some of the alternatives. What are some of your favorite do you like like impossible meat beyond meat what are your meat substitutes? I love Impossible Burger, but we don't have it in the UK. Oh, so really? I've only, I've only had it twice when I was in the US years and years ago, but I absolutely loved it. Over here, my favourite's uh, Beyond Meat. And to me, like I know many, many people disagree, but to me, you know, I, I, don't, I don't, just don't really notice the difference mm-hmm. compared to a beef burger. Well, maybe when we're sharing this electric car between LA and when I kind of send it back to you, in the UK from the States, I'll, I'll fill up the trunk yeah, with, with some, some impossible. impossible. Burgers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's zoom out on the food system just for a second. You mentioned earlier this somewhat surprising statistic that food production as a whole is responsible for about one quarter of the world's carbon emissions. It also uses half of the world's habitable land, 70% of fresh water withdrawals. It's a big driver of deforestation and it hurts biodiversity in a lot of places. And not only is food production taxing on the environment, it's also, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, susceptible to changes in temperature, changes in water availability. How worried should we be about food scarcity as climate change persists? I think for me, this is one of the biggest concerns when it comes to climate change, because we just know that there is quite a direct impact from rising temperatures on potential crop yields. And you can get particular events like a flood or a drought that can wipe out a crop for an entire season. As I said earlier, I think there are ways by which we can we can help to mitigate some of these impacts mm-hmm. by investing in uh, irrigation, for example, or um, better seed varieties or mm-hmm. more drought resistant crops. So I think we're not, you know, we don't, it's not like we don't have any tools to try to address this. But I think it's also important to identify that, like, by some of these other changes, like reducing meat consumption or reducing the use of biofuels, we can provide ourselves with a bit of a buffer in the food system. I think what's really underrated for people is just how much food the world produces. Yeah. Um, I think people would assume that, you know, we just about produce enough to feed everyone. And, you know, we just, we produce way more than that. Yep. The issue there is that so much of our food is wasted. One is just direct food waste, but also the big loss is feeding crops to livestock to produce meat. Now that conversion mm-hmm. process is really inefficient. So, 
if we reduce meat consumption, if we think about how we use biofuels, if we reduce food waste, we could have ourselves a bit more of a buffer where if in a particular region there is low yield for a year, we yeah. have a bit of food left in the system. Um, so it wouldn't create these massive shocks um, that we might expect with climate change. Okay, let's come on to our last clip. When we talk about climate change, I think we talk a lot about individual action. You know, can you buy an electric car? Can you walk more? Can you eat less meat? But I think we all recognize that for us to take significant steps towards reducing global emissions, we need not just individual action, but political action. That's something my friend Leah has been thinking about. Let's listen to her voice memo. Hi. Okay, my question is that it seems like in order to truly combat climate change, based on all the factors that contribute to it, it seems like it's going to take mass political action, like global political participation for this to happen. So do you think based on what's happening right now, knowing again, you're not necessarily a politician or political scientist, but it just seems impossible without participation from everyone on earth. I think you can hear a note of pessimism in her voice. And I think that's a note that I share. You know, we see these big global come togethers, you know, the, the, the UN conferences and, and everyone talks a big game about climate change. But I wonder if you really feel like there is the political motivation to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, I think political will has been really lacking and in some sense has held us back from where we could be. But what makes me a little bit less pessimistic on the politics of this than I otherwise might be is that while I think the politics of climate change is really partisan, I think on some of the solutions, it's less so. Hmm. So if you take the example of the US, now I think the US is actually probably the most divided country when it comes to on the right and left on like attitudes to climate. But what you find people on the right and left are really supportive of is clean energy. So if hmm. you just ask people about clean energy, you get the majority of voters on right and left that are supportive of deploying more clean energy. Now, if you look at where in the US low carbon technologies have been deployed. So if you look at wind power, for example, the five states with the largest share of wind power in their mix are all Republican. Huh. Now, that's not what you would expect because on it is very like clear that, you know, on political action, the left and the Democrats are more in favor of climate action. Mm-hmm. But Republican states are not necessarily deploying clean energy for climate reasons. That's actually very low on the list of priorities. Hmm. They're doing it because often the states, for example, Texas, are in what we call like the windy belt. So they have very large wind resources and you can get really good economic returns. Mm -hmm. So if you set up a system where these technologies, they're, they're affordable for landowners, they get some money, you might get more money going into the local area, you might get employment opportunities, you can promote energy security. If you promote all of these things, you mm-hmm. get much more people on board than if you were only using the climate message. Something that still keeps me up at night is the prevalence of climate denialism 
amongst people in power, particularly in the U.S. and particularly on the right. You know, we're, we're heading into election year where one of the main contenders for the presidency, Donald Trump, has said, quote, we shouldn't be worried about global warming. I think about a quarter of U.S. Congress denies that climate change is caused by humans. 70% of Republicans say that climate change is either a minor issue or no issue at all. Regardless of, of the ability to reframe this issue, I do have this anxiety that like, if the people in charge deny that climate change is an issue at all, how are we ever to hope that we can make any sort of progress? Like I, I totally hear you. Like I think, I think, I think that is a really big election year, and I could actually see that it has like quite a a marked influence on the US's trajectory over the next four years, for example. Sure. I don't think it will completely stop progress, but it could significantly slow progress. Yeah. So, like, I don't have a particularly good solution to this. Um, one, one again, I would just emphasise trying to focus. Uh, if that's the case, try to focus on the non-climate benefits of these technologies, um, and then overall, just keep in mind that this is a, a a problem that will will span many many presidencies. Yeah. Um. So, although there might be a short-term slowing of progress, there is the ability for uh, the US to vote out that person if they think that they're not um, in line on climate. And I mean, so it's important to keep in mind that this is a longer game than just the next four years. Well, I like that optimism. This feels like a good moment to take a quick break. And when we come back, let's make the case that we all need to be urgent optimists to borrow your term when it comes to climate change. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm DC Marshall. Hi, I'm Mita Malik. We are the co-host of the Brown Table Talk podcast, where we discuss how to help women of color thrive in their workplaces. And we invite allies to join us to help women of color win at work. We have a seat waiting for you. Subscribe to Brown Table Talk wherever you enjoy podcasts. So in the book, you encourage us all, I love this phrase, to be urgent optimists. You know, we should take climate change seriously, but we should also recognize that we have the power to make things better. And I think a really excellent example of what this urgent optimism looks like is air pollution. Just to start, give us a sense of how catastrophic air pollution is, how, how deadly it can be. Yeah, so globally, air pollution is a really big health problem. So there are a range of estimates on, on how many people die prematurely from air pollution every year. But they're all in the millions. And, you know, the, the estimate for the World Health Organization, for example, is around 7 million deaths every year. So it's a massive, massive health challenge. I wonder if you could tell the story of what's happened in Beijing over the past 20 or so years, because I think that's a really fascinating and remarkable example of how urgent optimism can lead to significant change. Beijing has made really, really dramatic progress on reducing air pollution. Now, a big trigger for this was the 2008 Olympics. 
Um, so the 2008 Olympics was held in Beijing and air pollution at the time was extremely, extremely bad. When Beijing won the Olympic Games, the organisers promised it would deal with the city's pollution and promised athletes that air quality would meet international standards. With the opening ceremonies of the Summer Olympics just 12 days away, key Olympic venues in the host city Beijing are barely visible. It's the one thing athletes don't want to do, choke. And in Beijing, they could do that quite literally. Now, the government, knowing that the world would be watching and athletes would be arriving from around the world and there would be lots of cameras, said we're going to go for a really short-term approach of, like, let's try to reduce air pollution very quickly for the 2008 Olympics. And they did so. Now, what happened was that after the Olympics was finished and everyone went home, things went back to normal and air pollution levels went up really high again. Now, that kind of sparked this kind of retaliation from the public who kind of thought, why was a government willing to reduce air pollution for kind of international visitors, but as a citizens, we need to just experience really poor air quality. So it was really a very much a, a bottom-up public, we just won't accept that our cities are polluted anymore. And that has actually been very, very effective. Like the Chinese government have brought in really effective regulations on air quality. They've moved some like really heavy heavy industry out of the city. They've brought in, you know, restrictions on cars. They've taken lots of action and rates of air pollution in Beijing have fallen very, very quickly, especially over the last decade. And that's a story that I think we've seen time and time again in places all over the world, right? Like, I mean, that's the same sort of arc that happened in the UK after the Great Smog of 1952, you know, that led to, as you say, bottom-up action to try to have cleaner air. It's what happened in the US that led in the 1970s to the passage of the Clean Air Act. So we've seen the urgent optimism leads to bottom-up change again and again worldwide over the past 50, 60, 70-odd years, haven't we? Absolutely. And I think, yeah, I think there are a range of examples where air pollution has gotten much, much better than it was in the past. And it came from this combination of the public being unwilling to accept this and, and political action. I think this is a really good framing of, of how I frame urgent optimism in the book, which is not this feeling of what optimism is often classed as, as, you know, oh, I'm sure things will be fine. It's not a big deal things will just get better. Like, no, that's not the case. We need to make them better, which is where the urgent comes in. Mm -hmm. Things will only get better if we push for it and we, we drive that change. But the air pollution is a good example where it took one, a realisation of the scale of the issue. So people had to, to realise that this was a big problem. This was serious. It was having severe impacts. But also the understanding that um, things could get better. Like there are, we know that there are ways to reduce air pollution. Why are we not doing them? So it's this combination of realizing there's a big problem, but also having this feeling of agency that um, there are things we can do to tackle them. Like we're in a very similar position on climate change. We need to recognize this is a massive problem. We need to recognize there are really potentially serious consequences if we don't do something. But we also need to combine that with a sense of there is actually something that we can do for about this and we need to push that. Do you have moments of doubt, Hannah? Like, are there mornings where you just wake up and you're like, I can't be an urgent optimist today? 
Absolutely. Like I, I lose a lot of sleep over these issues. I think people assume that I, you know, just skip around and I'm really happy all the time and I, I never feel sad about this stuff. Like I still feel really anxious about this stuff. Um, I feel really worried. But I think for me, there is just this sense of uh, not letting that overcome me because I think for me, it's just unproductive. Mm-hmm. Like I know that things can be better and I feel like I probably won't add a lot of value if I just sink into that feeling I think I need to combine this with a sense that things can move forward. It's not that I expect that we'll have this perfect world that I envision, but I just hope that I can do a little bit to get us closer to that. Sure. And I think your book is going to help get us closer to that. It's going to inspire people. It's inspired me. I want to end with just a couple of rapid fire questions. One of the things you say is that when you ask people, what can you do on the individual level to make a difference uh, when it comes to climate, the stuff that they list tends to be small. So I'd love to just throw a couple of uh, a couple of things at you that people reach for when they think they're being green. And I want you to tell me, are these effective? Are these not effective? Are they maybe even a waste of time? Okay, here we go. Recycling. Uh, not that effective. Like, do do it because I also do it and it makes a small difference, but it's not a big part of your footprint. Wow. Okay. Switching incandescent light bulbs to LED light bulbs. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Like, LED light bulbs are very, very efficient. Like, making that switch is, is important. Um, what I'd stress a little bit less about is, you know, being panicky about, you know, accidentally leaving the light on in a, a particular room um, for an hour when you weren't there. Banning plastic bags. No, very little impact. When people go to the supermarket, what they think about for their carbon footprint is the the bag. Um, when actually what's really important is what you put in the bag. Like the bag is a, a really tiny fraction of the carbon footprint of the, f- the food that you're buying. Um, so it's not necessarily the bag or the packaging, it's the, the stuff that you're eating. Okay, sticking on food, eating organic. No, it doesn't have the, the big environmental benefits that I think people assume. One of the problems of organic farming is it tends to get lower yields than conventional farming, which means that uh, often you'll have to use more land to produce the same amount of food. So that increases our pressures on land and biodiversity and and deforestation. So no, I wouldn't focus on, I need to always buy organic to help the environment. Okay, what about eating locally, eating locally sourced uh, meats and, and, and foods? Yeah, this is a really common misconception where I think people assume that the best thing they can do for their diet on carbon footprint is to eat local. But when we actually look at the data, only around 5% of emissions from food um, come from transport. Most of the emissions come from land use or emissions on the farm, which is very much dependent on the type of food you're eating, not how far it's travelled to reach you. So I think there are reasons why people would want to eat local, like to support local communities or see the animal welfare standards that they're buying from. But on the basis of carbon footprint, the stuff that you're eating matters much more than how far it's travelled to reach you. What's your take on dishwashers? Use them, don't use them, doesn't matter. I mean, we should clean our dishes probably, but... Yeah, I I recommend cleaning your dishes. Um, I think probably a dishwasher is better, but make sure you fill it. 
So mm-hmm. don't just do the dishwasher after every single meal because um, that will rack up a lot of energy. But if you wait till the dishwasher's full, then I'd go for that. Okay, last one. Ordering something on Amazon to be delivered or getting in your car and driving to the store to pick up the same item. Oh, that's a tricky one because I think it depends on how far away the store is. I mean, the the ultimate would be to walk to the store. That would be much, much better. Um, oh, it's, that's a bit tricky. I'm going to be inclined to say maybe the Amazon delivery. Wow. Um, I think if it can do it, pick a really like optimized route for the deliveries on its travel that might be better than every single person getting in their individual car and going to the shop and whether or not i mean certainly here in california more and more delivery vehicles are now electric um you know i think the electrification yeah. of, de- of of transportation fleets could uh, that could be beneficial there too and we could maybe have a drone soon maybe your, yeah. your amazon delivery will be droned in yeah who i mean i find that somewhat freaky but hey Hannah, it's been really great to talk with you. I feel urgently optimistic about climate change, uh, which is not something I think I would have said a week ago before I read your book. So thank you for this book. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work you do with Our World and Data. And yeah, we'll 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 talk offline about how we're going to figure out this transatlantic car and impossible meat share. Great. No, thanks very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Listeners, if you'd like to try Impossible Burger for yourself, use the promo code. Just kidding. I do actually have a promo code for you, though. Not for Impossible Burger. This one gets you 20% off a Next Big Idea Club membership. You've heard us talk about this before. It's a one-of-a-kind book club curated by Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Kane, and Daniel Pink. And if you use the code podcast at nextbigideaclub.com, you'll get 20% off. There's a link in the episode notes. Hannah Ritchie's new book, Not the End of the World, is out now. And I want people to read this book. I want you to read this book. So here's what I'm going to do. Send me an email. I'm at podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. Tell me whether this episode made you feel better or worse about climate change. And if you're one of the first three people I hear from, I'll mail you a copy of Hannah's book. Today's episode was written and produced by me, Caleb Bissinger. Our sound designer is Mike Toda. Rufus Griscom is our executive producer. We couldn't make this show without the support of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. And if it weren't so bad for the environment, I would fly to New York right now to tell them that in person. But I guess this will just have to suffice. See you next week.